This is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, James chats with Ryan Summers about the process of developing protocols, the guidelines of working in safety critical, and embedded engineering. For more episodes, show notes, and the transcript, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. So I think the thing that originally got us to reach out for a podcast episode was talking about MQTT, right? Yeah, I think it was mostly MQTT and runtime configuration of devices and kind of embedded and things like that. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, I think the thing that I've seen you work on the most is Stabilizer. And I know that's got all of that, I assume. I assume like every experiment run is configured and it's always talking over MQTT over Ethernet, I think. So I think you're basically the perfect person to talk about that about, right? Yeah, actually, Stabilizer is not even the only project I've done for Quartic. There's also Booster, which is a big kind of for you rack mount power amplifier for lasers as well. And so we've kind of tried to make a common stack for them that they can talk and configure the devices because the idea is to have all of these things in a lab sitting together, network them together, hook up lasers, um, maybe sometimes send signals all the way across Germany to other labs and things like that. So the idea is that you could connect all of these devices, have them talk to each other and control things. Cool. So before we get too far with all of that, because I want to talk about <laughs> all of that, uh, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, my name is Ryan Summers. I have been doing embedded Rust for four or five years now, something around that. I do embedded consulting and also have a startup doing embedded manufacturing automation. So if you ever want to look up forge.dev. Oh, you're working. Oh, that's right. You have mentioned that you're working with Noah. Yeah, I've done a Rust startup too. So very cool. There's many things we could talk about today if you want. <laughs> so you mentioned Stabilizer and Booster. Do you want to give a quick example of what each of those are and how those typically get used for scientific things? Yeah, the easier one to start with is definitely Booster. The general idea is that you've got some kind of signal source that you're going to be using to drive some laser in a lab. And generally, the laser needs to be running at some kind of high power, and your signal generator doesn't generate at high power. And so the idea is you run coaxial into this thing, specify how much gain you want on the output, and it handles all of the power management generates the, the necessary gain so that you can actually drive your big laser load. And it's got all kinds of nice safety protection mechanisms. It's got fans in there that you can automatically spin up and keep things cool. It'll handle interlock tripping, overpower, and all kinds of fancy things. So what does high power in this case means? Because it's one of those domain-specific things where like sometimes high power means like an amp, and then sometimes high power means like, well, it's thousands of amps. But I guess for lasers... Because blind you starts pretty early with lasers, so I have no difference between like blinds you and could cut wood sort of laser power. That's, yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't actually know. I don't do much in the physics realm. The only thing I do know is that they use some of these lasers for things like both neutral atom and ion traps. And so they might need more high power lasers than what I normally would think a laser would be. So I don't know, good question. But there's some pretty beefy fans. The device is pretty large and it has direct mains wall connection. So I imagine you're probably in the few amps range. Gotcha. So that's your it's your amplifier, but I'm assuming with a much lower latency and a much higher power than your typical like speaker amplifier type of system. Yeah. Very cool. So then that's booster. So then what is stabilizer? Yeah, stabilizer. That's the hard one. The best way to describe it is that it's 
a Swiss army knife in that it takes in arbitrary analog signals, does all kinds of DSP math on that, and then generates some analog output. And so essentially you get this big two-channel input, do all the math you want in the software realm, modify the signal wherever you want, implement your own control loops, have PID controllers, have low-pass filters, all kinds of things, and then you generate your DAC signals and you write them out to the buffer. And the whole idea is that it's pretty low latency, very deterministic, can handle a whole ton of throughput, and it's got a pretty beefy CPU on there. So we've got full live stream data streaming, so you can offload it onto a computer for analysis, all kinds of good stuff. I think that's where we first started working with MQTT, because there was this need to be able to say like, ah, well, I need to adjust these filters or my scientific experiment has these different requirements. And so we were like, well, we don't want to flash the device every time we need to like update the filter parameters. And because we don't know what they're going to be, kind of need to adjust in the fly on the lab. And so what it actually allowed us to do is we put MQTT on there, our configuration software, and then we just run some Python scripts that automatically calibrate so you're using Ethernet for the only data link to the device, right? But I'm guessing you have a separate channel for high throughput digital acquisition data, data, and then MQT is primarily your control plane, or is the data plane also MQTT just sending serialized data out over MQTT or something like that? No, so we've got it set up in a few different ways where the data streaming is just kind of raw UDP um, stream to an endpoint. I think we have it set up so that on MQTT, you basically say, stream all of the raw data to this IP address at this port. And once you set that, it will just start dumping it out there. But I, it would be interesting to see if you actually could run that over MQTT, because honestly, the protocol is pretty tiny on top of the actual data. But it's a good question. This is one of those things that I was going to poke at. So, I mean, I've done IoT stuff for the last while. <laughs> and it's one of those things that, like, I came from, like, the avionics side and then went into IoT. And first, it was like, a huge culture shock of, what do you mean product cycles aren't measured in the better part of a decade or something like that? I was doing a lot of rapid prototyping stuff, too, for startups and things like that. The change of pace was just really interesting to me. I mean, MQTC is not new. I mean, like, it has a really interesting history of, I think it came from, like, oil rigs or something like that. The idea was that it was over basically satellite text messages. And that was the idea was that it was this super low overhead pub sub protocol so that when you were talking with middle of the ocean satellite uh, rigs, you could do broadcast and things like that. And then eventually it became the standard that people use for IoT stuff now where nowadays it's almost exclusively over TCP. Even the embedded systems that I see use it We'll do it over at like an ESP32 for Wi-Fi or some kind of hardwired Ethernet or something like that. And everyone's using like JSON for the message formats. And that's even sort of now even codified by these cloud platforms like AWS Greengrass. It's like web requests over MQTT where it almost feels like you've taken what everyone describes as a lightweight protocol with very embedded friendly and things like that. And it's like, well, but you're doing TCP with TLS especially like five or six years ago when the ESP32 wasn't even really a thing. There was really only like the A266 and your Wi-Fi choices were usually <laughs> super limited where everyone's like, it's this embedded friendly platform, but then everyone runs it on a Raspberry Pi or something like that. And it's like, well, if you have a device that's doing TLS and doing all of this, why do you need a lightweight message protocol versus something like 0MQ or 
RabbitMQ or like any of the other PubSub message brokers, which get used a lot for backend services for either like control plane. I came to you and I reached out to you because you were saying very positive things about MQTT. And I was like, I have this big chip on my shoulder from doing a lot of one-off demos where it worked and it's like a reasonable protocol and it has very like straightforward, nice to work with semantics. But it always bugged me as someone who has done a lot of like either really hard real-time embedded stuff or very like, ah, we've got eight kilobytes of RAM kind of thing when people describe it as like a lightweight embedded protocol. And I'm like, as soon as you have TLS, like you've sort of left the realm of lightweight protocol. But I guess since your control plane is largely wired ethernet and you're on, I'm hoping a a fairly well segmented network, these aren't connected to the internet sort of devices. These are connected to local control land kind of devices, hopefully. You make a very good point about the TCP TLS being a very heavyweight stack, especially when you're coming to the embedded realm and you have this low bandwidth protocol, ideally. And in reality, I kind of had the same assessment as you, that it feels weird that you would write this very low overhead protocol and then require this super heavyweight TLS TCP underneath. In our use case, we did the exact same thing. We're taking JSON, so obviously not using these very condensed packets, and we're actually not using MQTT in a manner where we care about kind of throughput and data rates and things like that. I think the main reason we ended up going for it is because it's actually got kind of an ecosystem that's developed around it. Like now we could potentially allow someone who uses one of these devices in the lab to hook straight up to some of those like AWS services and start logging all of those things. And one of the nice things we have is suddenly you can spin up Grafana in five minutes and get yourself a dashboard that shows everything about the device over the last week. And so you can see how hot things were, what kind of gains, how the control loop was behaving. We've actually used this to diagnose why test setups in labs were malfunctioning because like, oh, we see this huge correlation where like suddenly when we get a few tenths of a degree C increase on this device, we start seeing immediately like the control loop starts getting out of whack and our error starts increasing. I don't know if I'd use it for a really deep, real-time, deeply embedded kind of application, but Here it works really nicely where we just want to be able to have something that's connected to the network, not think about it. There's a well-established protocol and we can use that for telemetry and control. Yeah, that's one of those like make or breaks for embedded projects, in my opinion, is having a backbone to the device that you're talking to and having some sort of protocol where you can do multiple things over. So like it's almost the first thing that I do on nearly every project is if it's over USB, I set up some kind of data pipe over USB where I can send logging messages and command and responses. And then ideally having things like instrumentation commands so you can trigger it to do behaviors either for testing or just for like, okay, now I've hooked up my oscilloscope onto this and I need to figure out why this relay is glitching a little bit and I can look at it and I can just press a button on my laptop and make it do things. And then when you start getting into devices where you have tens or hundreds or thousands, especially then having a network where you can talk to a fleet at once and address them using things like that. And you mentioned being able to use off the shelf Python libraries. I've built a lot of bespoke protocols. Like when I do hobby stuff, I do bespoke everything because that's just, you know, that's what brings me joy. But for for customer projects and stuff like that, where you're like, I'm not going to be the only one maintaining this. I don't have unlimited time and there are actually deadlines and things like that. And like you said, just being able to 
have something that everyone deals with with like MQTT plus JSON is great because literally any language can download a library. And if you pointed at an IP address or the same broker that all of your end devices are talking about, it doesn't matter whether you speak Python or Rust or Bash or C or whatever. You have this sort of like common language where even though it's not ideal in any sense of the word, the real value is everyone can use it. And I think that's really what I saw for a lot of the IoT prototyping, if nothing else, was even then Mosquito was a good, well-known broker and there were libraries like the Paho MQTT or dozens of other ones where it was always really easy if you had a device that could do TLS or could do whatever networking you were doing. MQTT was always just one of those set it and forget it kind of things. Then the problem is it doesn't really give you much on top of that. You've got topics which you can use to subscribe to. Then just the payloads are whatever, but everyone uses JSON, which means everything's free form, which means everything like there's no actual schema. A lot of the time it's just, okay, we have LED on. We send a message that's like LED state colon quote on and it, it gets like really ad hoc, which on one hand means that you can power through something really quickly. I'm wondering actually how you handle that at scale, whether you just have like an internal spec of like. Topics look like this. We use these kind of wildcards here. We expect all devices to listen to these topics with their name in the thing, or we expect the message schema to be this, or just by convention, like it just is what it is. And you have a markdown document talk somewhere that has all of the example JSON messages or something in there. Yeah, so this is actually where I think things get really interesting with Rust. First of all, we're in the no TLS realm right now. I think the next thing on my plate over the next few months is like, maybe we could get embedded TLS running on this and get that going talk on cloud. But going back to the, the schema, one of the things we wanted on top, I talked about this is kind of like the runtime configuration. So we wanted to be able to say like, how do I change a setting on the device in like a sustainable manner where we can reuse this through multiple projects. So we actually developed a method using Rust derived macros. And so you just write a struct in Rust and you just put this derived mini conf on it. And it'll automatically interpret that into an entire tree of strings and publish that automatically over MQTT of like, this is what my current settings tree looks like. And then you can modify any of those settings to what you want. And so we have like all of these setting structures for booster, for um, stabilizer that have all of their different things that they're using and is all just in a Rust struct. And you just hand that to the MQTT client say like, hey, use this as the settings, derive your tree from it, publish everything that we currently have on boot up so that someone listening knows what settings you're using, and then maybe they want to change them. And so it makes it really nice because suddenly you can like, ah, this setting isn't actually what I want. You just restructure that to Rust and it automatically propagates itself over MQTT and handles all of the publications. So. See, that's really interesting because that's one of the things I've struggled with was because in Rust, typically I use like Serde a lot where your schema is your struct definition. I do a lot of like binary serialization with postcard too, where you really need the schema to match. There's no like, oops, I don't know about that field. So I'll just skip it because in a binary protocol that just gets interpreted as the next field, which means now all of your deserialization is garbage and things like that. That's one of those interesting things where from more dynamic protocols like JSON, where you can have new fields and added fields and restructured fields is how do you handle the case where what your device is sending doesn't match what your tooling is expecting? 
you mentioned the devices send out their schema on boot, which I guess if you're using like Python or something like that, you can dynamically evaluate and make yourself like a dynamic class that has all the fields and things like that you could deal with. Or in Rust, you could just use like Saturday value and interpret that. But when you have to send messages back, is it just something you can just tell when you've changed the schema? Because you go, wait a second, the tooling is expecting the word temp for temperature, but someone changed it to temp underscore C or temperature or something like that's a really minor renaming change. But there's also a ton of like reorganization and reordering and things like that. They can really screw up schemas. I wrote a whole post that was like, is there any value in partially understanding a message? Because if you don't understand it, the best case you can do is gracefully ignore it, like from a programmatic standpoint. It's a little different when you have a human operator and maybe they get like a dynamically built GUI and they're expected to go in and like, as a human, (laughs) you know, respond to these sort of things. If you're writing a long running script, if you all of a sudden are getting messages that you don't understand, the best thing you can hope for is your program just goes, I don't know, and doesn't do anything that might cause problems or something like that. And especially when you have high powered lasers, you really don't want any uh, misinterpretation of the kind of settings that you're doing. So I'm interested to hear how you handle that or if you just like careful deployment or we just don't touch the schemas for well-known messages or. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. In regard to schemas, I don't know if you could strictly say that we're publishing a schema. What we are publishing on the first startup is like, These are all the settings that are available to you. And this is the current value. And right now we're using Serity JSON. A lot of work just happened in the last week or two with Robert refactoring Minicon that actually took away the assumptions of knowing that like there's Serity underneath or that MQTT is used in the way. And the idea now is that you can use it to just map an arbitrary string of keys into an endpoint within your structure. And then you can, anything that implements serialize or deserialize, you can pass that in, you pass in your key iterator, and then you just say, okay, I'll deserialize it when I get to the terminal endpoint. It'll figure out the type when it's there. The idea is like, you could now use this kind of mini constructor over any kind of data link layer, like if you had USB or UART or something like that. Like you could probably use postcard to use this just fine. But in terms of getting back to your question about schema, This is really where Rust error handling is pretty incredible because essentially when you get to the end, someone's given you some payload and said like, hey, set the setting to this value. And really we're leveraging Serity at that point where we say like, hey, try and turn that into the type we want. And what's really nice is you can start just propagating errors out using just the question mark and letting things go all the way back but then you can start catching them at the MQTT interface and start using that error formatting and then print that back as a response over MQTT. And so suddenly on your Python side or on your PC where you're trying to configure it, when someone tries to set a setting, you immediately get a response string that says like, hey, that deserialization failed because I expected this like backslash in this location we didn't get it. And so it's really cool to be able to see like proper error handling written in code immediately translate into this wonderful user experience on the tooling side. But it, it also makes it more complicated because as you're writing a library, you're like, I need to make these errors right because this propagates all the way back out to the end user. It's not just code at this point. Someone needs to be able to read this and understand how to fix it. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely one of those things where, yeah, having those kind of channels, whether it, you're setting up a request response Oh, that's another thing I, I kind of want to poke at is is like your actual communication model of PubSub versus RPC. But 
having that ability to get that response back is huge. And the more fidelity that you can give back, either that just gets shoved into a log so you can see if this is like a one off. Oops, yeah, the message was corrupted on the line or the message was partially dropped or things like that. Or really, no, you tried to set temp and we don't know what the field temp is. We only know temperature is one of those quick feedback things that becomes a really big deal. The messaging style, it's another thing that I sort of poke at MQTT because you have this world where everyone's connected to a broker. And what I see a lot of people end up doing is they just do a lot of point to point communication and almost to the point where they are doing mandatory responses. So every command you send gets an ACK, which means, or not just an ACK, but like an uh, application layer acknowledgement. So you send the message, the protocol sends back, yes, I have received that message. Depending on your quality of QoS settings, you either then get like a double acknowledgement or whatever, and then the application deals with it. And then it sends back a message that says, yes, that succeeded or, or no, that failed and things like that where even though you have this pub sub world, you end up doing exclusively point to point links. So it is still useful because all of your end devices end up talking back to the same endpoint, which is very useful because it means you don't have to think about it. And once your tooling or whatever connects to that as well, you have at least the routing to all of that, regardless of how they're actually wired up. It's not really like pub subby, you know what I mean? Like if you're always sending one message to one device every single time, it's not very pub subby. It's like you have a point to point link with like a you have a star topology, really. And especially when you have like AWS handling this and then you go, oh, well, we're also like you don't really broadcast messages to multiple devices. You end up getting this like point to point link enforced by security, which is also not something that MQTT as a protocol super understands. But all of the brokers, like the commercial brokers that I've seen, like not Mosquito, Mosquito handles it where you send everything out and everyone could see anything and there's no real like ACLing or there's now there's probably ACLing. But in like managed brokers from AWS or I'm picking on AWS just because I had a client like a couple weeks ago that used Greengrass. So like this is in my brain right now. You end up like enforcing at the ACL level that these are all point to point links and things like that. So is that something that you actually leverage where you say set everyone to this? Or is it really still like a, a point to point link for you? I, I'm just interesting if I can find anyone in the field who has used it sort of the way the protocol was designed rather than, oh, this is a protocol that's close enough to what we actually want to do. And it means that we don't have to write tooling. So we just use it because it's portable, even if we're sort of like not abusing, but like evolution of how <laughs> an actual protocol gets used. So actually in MQTT v5, they updated a lot of the way MQTT works to support this kind of point-to-point -point communication a lot more because now messages have properties associated with them. And one of the properties is something called correlation data, where it's just a binary blob that you say, like, this is this message. And the intended use case is that you send that message to someone, they inspect all the properties, they say, ah, there's this correlation data. And when they generate a response, they're going to put that correlation data in there. And there's one of the properties is like, what is the response topic? So they've obviously recognized that a lot of people are using it in this kind of not traditional pub sub, but point to point communication. And in our case, we're also mainly using it for point to point for the configuration stuff. But I really think the main point is that you get the best of both worlds because we do use the telemetry for real pub sub usage where you're broadcasting out your current state to everyone that's listening. And in some cases, we've got our 
telegraph scraper that's collecting it and putting it into a DB and influx so that we can start visualizing our dashboard. We've also got our development tools up there looking at it so we can see like, ah, oh, what's the state of the devices? We're like running these control loops and stuff. And so really you get both things, which is really nice. I, back in my university days, I did a lot of work with ROS, the robot operating system, and that uses their traditional PubSub methodology. And really like that being able to publish data somewhere makes developing your system a lot simpler because you no longer have to think about how tightly structured it is. You just start blasting out the data for everyone to listen to. Maybe someone will need it. And then when you're going and working on some other component in the future, you're like, ah, yeah, let me just subscribe to that because I actually, I could use this specific piece of information and I'm going to go and implement my new functionality based on that. So really, you don't have to go and modify that original component now to get that data is just out there in the open for you. So I think really that the benefits of that pub sub style is really just flexibility in design. Yeah. And that's actually a really good point because when I was doing MQT stuff, this is still in the four point whatever days and that's been five or six years. And, you know, I, I'm sure the actual use now that Greengrass has launched and I'm sure there are millions and millions and millions more users now of MQT than when I was poking around it. I was working at an IoT it was an IoT platform, and that was sort of our main ingress from a lot of these devices was MQTT. So we were building a lot of those things, and I think that was around the time when Greengrass launched for the first time. And then I think maybe um, Azure had a, an offering that came out around the same time and things like that. So it was interesting to see what we did. And you could tell that there were a lot of these patterns being built because we weren't the only ones doing it that way. You know, you could see a lot of other people doing that. So it's it's interesting to hear that a lot of that is come out in MQTT5. So I might be just totally off base and going, oh, it doesn't do like that or or it doesn't act like that. And the answer is maybe in MQTT4, it was awkward, but in MQTT5, they've just gone, no, this is how people are using it. We'll, we'll live with it. But it's interesting because I, I think you also nail a really big point. It, there's no like ideal pure usage of a tool the way it was designed. It was like, you're solving problems and if it's good enough and it means that you don't have to spend a ton of time developing it and all of that, done ship it like so it's one of those things of like for my personal projects i super overdo it it's weird because my brain will turn off for personal projects versus customer projects because if you ask me a question when i'm just doing hobby stuff i'll be like no it must be perfect it has to be like this but for customer projects i have a much better way of turning off my brain and being like nope we're shipping in three weeks it needs to be done good you know good enough and i think the actual points that you raised of having that ability of a way to talk to the device and tooling that lets you talk to the device and that flexibility to go, hey, I need more logs. I need to add more logs and I need to add the ability to understand these logs very quickly is one of those things that really does shine with tools like JSON or MQT and things like that. Because you can always throw out another topic, which existing tooling doesn't have to pay attention to. They can just pretend like those messages don't exist and you don't have to think about routing or filtering or things like that. It's just like, ah, I will add up one service that just looks at the like hourly fault rate from every device because then I can see patterns and maybe correlate that with temperature or something like that where it does lend itself to the throw all the data into the ether and catch it and then worry about data analysis later or figuring out correlation or trends and things like that. And especially when I was working on IoT devices, that's one of those things where 
trends end up being a lot more interesting than absolute values. Like in the scientific pursuits and things like that, you are very interested in making sure that things are calibrated and accurate. And you're very interested in the raw data captured or the process data that's captured. But especially when you have consumer devices or when you're when you're dealing with the like more operational level rather than the scientific level, trends matter because it might not matter if you have five faults an hour or 10 faults an hour or whatever. And maybe some devices will be five and some will be 10 and some will be 20 or whatever for some metric of line noise. But when they start changing, that's the really interesting thing because that's when your devices experience something weird or you can see those trends even if the devices aren't calibrated to some exact reference where they have a different baseline. But when they all start going up, then it becomes really interesting. So, I mean, like I feel like that kind of capture first process later or writing pieces of the the system that only listen to the parts they care about. I think that does really shine with MQT and that's something I deal with some of my bespoke fancy protocols because when I've built this all to be perfect and efficient, then all of a sudden I want to change one thing and everything falls over. <laughs> so I totally see the value of that. And I don't, well, I didn't super mean to put you on the spot of defending MQT and things like that. I think it's an interesting protocol, but it's one of those things where I learned it because I needed to learn it for work. So, I mean, you learn enough to become productive very quickly. And as you're learning, you're sort of battling your preconceived notions and your past experience versus what you're learning. And sometimes you hit these hitches where you go like, that's not how it should be. It should be something else. And sometimes the answer is, yeah, it should, but it isn't. So, you know, whatever. And then the other time is, ah, you're missing this piece of information, which is why you think it doesn't click, but it's just because you're missing some step in there. And I've always sort of wondered, is my like lack of love or, or problems or chip on my shoulder about MQT? Because yeah, it's just, you know, it's evolved. People just use it because it was close enough and don't try and worry about why it's not the way it isn't. Or Am I just really missing something? So that's why I was sort of poking around because I'm interested in hearing someone who really loves using the tool and seeing if there's just a piece of that that didn't click or if I'm just undervaluing the flexibility and I go, oh, it could be better if it wasn't flexible. But then that's sort of the key value. You know what I mean? So I find it interesting that you're thinking that I'm like the MQTT evangelist here. I, I would... Phrase it more as a love-hate relationship. As I'm implementing the client and protocol, I'm like, man, this is just so incredibly wonky sometimes. And I mean, any protocol has got its own weird quirks, right? But ultimately, what drove us to use MQTT was back when we were first starting out on some of these projects. We had this need where we're like, we need to control these things. We've got an Ethernet connection. We don't want to develop our own protocol because we'd like to be able to leverage anything that's kind of out there. And so we are kind of looking around and saying like, okay, what, well, what protocols are there? And I know CoAP was kind of on our list. MQTT was there. I don't know if we saw many others, but ultimately it was more along the lines of like, what is something that we can give back to the community that doesn't exist yet? Because this is a need that we have, and we can probably imagine that a lot of other people are going to have this, especially as microcontrollers start having more and more capabilities. Like you start seeing the STM32H7, it's incredible what you can do on that chip, even if it's not power efficient. Things are getting more connectivity. You see network stacks more often. The libraries are getting much more optimized. So you can start fitting things like small TCP on very small devices. And so really what we wanted to do is like, the beauty of this contract is that it's been open source work. And so we were able to say, how can we 
find something, fill a niche in the community and publish it out there that other people could also use it. So I think that was one of the real driving factors from MQTT2 because it's like, hey, this is a widely adopted protocol. There's nothing here that works on embedded in Rust yet. So why don't we go ahead and write a library so other people can use it too if they want? And really just being able to see kind of what that brings out is really fascinating because honestly, I had never even heard of MQTT before we went on building this client. Like, yeah, this looks like it fills our needs. And then seeing what comes out as a result, suddenly now two or three years down the line, we have these five line Grafana configs and we get this whole dashboard, like all the time series information. And then suddenly they were able to debug like an atom trap. And we're able to say like, ah, yeah, when we had the temperature go a little high, our error increased and we lost it. And you wouldn't have that capability without having kind of this connectivity to the device and these ease of integration with existing tooling. Like, yeah, the data is theoretically all there, but you made a good point. When you're looking at these IoT or network connected devices, you're mainly interested in the data over time. You're not interested in an immediate point like, oh, cool, the temperature is 32.5 C. Like that is absolutely meaningless to me. But suddenly when you start looking at it over the time of the day, like, oh, what's the difference at night versus like, what's the hottest point of the day? Is that going to affect some of our measurements? And is that affecting how the setup is actually working? And you can actually start seeing some of that. And that becomes way more fascinating when you aren't looking at it as an individual point, but as a collective whole, especially when like, we don't have the capability to store all of this data on the device. And we're not going to write all this bespoke tooling on the computer to collect it all and keep it all there, put it into a Postgres database and write all these visualizers. Like, no, I'm not interested. Being able to leverage without there is really what's been powerful from this outcome here kind of looking back retrospectively. I don't know if we intended any of this when we first set out, but it's been cool to see. Yeah, and that's interesting. So how has that changed for you over the development cycle? Because I'm not sure how early you came into the project, but having that sort of backbone of connectivity and the ability to get that kind of data, how much of that did you build and lean on in the early stages of development. So not necessarily like developing the protocol, but I assume once you had the protocol up and you were working on it versus the longer term evolution of it or maintenance of it, or has there been any like major shift there? Or is that just generally, no, we built them as we needed them. And it turns out sometimes they were really useful months later, or they haven't been useful yet, but it doesn't hurt to keep sending them. Like, is that kind of connectivity, how you use that? Has that changed over time? Oh yeah, definitely. When I first came onto the project, I think it had just recently gotten started up. I mean, it was 2019. I think the H7 series was relatively new, especially in Rust support. And I think what Robert had done was the very first Ethernet small TCP implementation on the H7 using like raw registers and stuff. And I think that eventually started making its way into the H7 how Richard Chiang, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right incorporated that into the HAL after looking at the stabilizer repo and we got it all in there. And so really it's been interesting to track from when we first started out on the chip when there really wasn't much support and kind of leveraging all of the things that we're adding into the project and start pushing that into the open source. We started out pretty low level and figured out what we needed as we went. And we got this kind of like, okay, now once we've got the basics of MQTT, we started with a very minimal client. Let's just be able to connect Let's be able to publish. Let's be able to subscribe. We're not going to worry about retained topics. We're not going to worry about topic aliasing or quality of service. Like none of that jazz. I just want to fire and forget because the rest of it seems like a lot of work. 
And so we kind of got that going and working and we we're publishing telemetry and information about the device and suddenly like, man, it'd be really, really nice if we could talk back to it. Change your state, do something else, command it, like not even to the extent of like modifying setting, but even just telling it, hey, I want you to perform some action now, like set some relays or something, not configure it like, I don't know, initiate a measurement, for example, if they're long running. And so we started seeing like, okay, there's these things that we kind of need from a high level of an application. How can we kind of build on top of this now? So we've got like, if you think of the OSI model, TCP, you've got MQTT sitting on top of that. Okay, well, we've now got this nice way to talk to a specific device, get these acknowledgements and verify that we're setting it properly, get responses, get feedback. So say for Booster, we've got an example where we want to set the gain on one of the channels. And so we say, like, set the gate source threshold voltage to 1.7 volts. And then in the response, it tells us what the drain current is. And so you can now write your control loop on the computer side where you say, like, okay, I'm going to iterate across all of the thresholds for the transistor gate. And once I start getting the point that I want, okay, now let's start backing off and lower it until we get right. So you can kind of tune it in response with this real-time feedback of, like, send a message to the device, get a response back, analyze it, figure out what you need to do. And suddenly now you've offloaded this entire control algorithm from having to write it in firmware where you need to think about timing, you need to think about how you're going to do these asynchronous control loops where you set the transistor gate threshold, but then you need to wait 10 milliseconds or something until the ADC update comes in and you need to do this 500 to 1,000 times. And it's just, it becomes this whole mess. But suddenly, if like you just expose this functionality like, set gate threshold, get the response. You can do all of that on a computer in Python. And you don't have to think about the complexities that go into that. And it's fascinating because similar in this thing, one of the projects that just got finished up is they had, Portic does more than just booster and stabilizers. There's all kinds of lab-grade hardware that they're building for people. And one of the setups they had was a neutral atom trap. And I believe they actually had stabilizer or one of their other controllers talking to another device, both of which were running MQTT, these Minicon clients, and basically one was setting an interlock for the other and saying like, hey, disable yourself now based on its measurements. So it was performing like remote temperature sensing, remotely disabling the other device. To me, that was just really cool to see in the end because you don't set out with the intent to build these kind of systems when you're like, oh, I want to build an MQTT client. Like you have no idea what it's going to be used for. But then when you see someone come in afterwards and like start connecting all these things together across multiple embedded devices and doing end-to-end communication, like you see that as a buzzword all the time. You're like, yeah, but when did people actually do that? And then suddenly like someone did it and it actually helped to solve their problem. It's just like, whoa, that's really cool. Yeah. So you poked at a couple things that are interesting because there's very different environments for we're building a consumer device that is connected for whatever reason, like it talks to MQT for logging or updates or remote control or something like that, where, where it's intended to be a, a system to itself. It is doing what it was designed to do and it does that. And then there's devices where you're designing them more to be lab equipment, if that makes sense. Like you said, it will be expected that you are not designing the functionality. You are designing the toolkit of functionality to let other people build what they're trying to build. And it's interesting 
that never works for consumer products for every consumer product I've ever seen. It's like, Oh, it's flexible. And you can do that. Like IFTTT is like the only version of that that I've ever seen. That's not really developer focused, but it's like, you can make it do what you'd like it to do. Or, you know, there's some platforms for like home assistant or, or things like that. But when you're talking about like a normal retail device, like your dishwasher or your fridge or something, like even if it has the ability to have some kind of sensor or send you a notification when you're, washing is done or something like that. They're not flexible. They are doing what they are meant to be done. But that's interesting that you point out, I mean, you're really working in a different field where you are building tools for other people. You're not designing these experiments. You say like, it's a power amplifier, like, or it has this, or you you can write custom firmware or if someone wants something specific, maybe you're writing some of the logic. Being able to offload that is really interesting. And from there, It's always interesting. There's like two main approaches that I've seen to people implement embedded systems. It's a range, but there's sort of like two polar opposites where one is you design it dumb, like a control system, really, like in the same way that you would design a piece of electronics where you say like, yes, it might have some states that it walks through and things like that. And there might be some logic that it handles, but primarily I'm treating it as a very dumb modelable device. And you see a lot of things where people just have like a register table where you say like, there's a table of the gate voltage in, out, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, almost getting close to like ladder logic with PLCs and things like that, where the logic is very limited, but it's mostly parameters and you are tuning them and you might be able to control them remotely with some sort of orchestration or something like that. But the system itself does not think it is set to a value and it maintains a control loop or a pattern, or it responds to certain events in certain ways. Like, ah, when I get over this threshold, I cut all of these outputs or something like that. And the other side is people who build systems that are all of the logic lives on the device. So I guess that's mostly like, where does the logic live? Like, does it live somewhere else? And the device that you are building is an extension of that logic that just does, it, it expects that it is one piece in the puzzle and it doesn't think it just does what it is told versus people who build firmware that are very complex and thinks and goes, oh, when I am this state, I have this whole decision tree of how I could react, or I have this application logic that I'm thinking a lot of where on one hand that allows you for, for very fine grain control, but on the other side, it makes it very inflexible. It is doing what it is designed to do because all the logic lives on that. I immediately said that there are two things and I'm saying that you're doing something in the middle where there are certain tasks, like you said, where you need that I'm going to I'm going to invoke some audio like DSP language here because it's the only resource I have to draw from where if you're building a a modular synth or something like that, there's typically like two rates that you think of. You think of the audio rate. So I am sampling at 44, one kilohertz or whatever, like I need to be processing samples and things like that. But then they'll typically have a control rate, which is much lower than that, maybe like one kilohertz or two kilohertz of like, yes, although I can sample 12 channels at 44 kilohertz. I can only make changes to my filter parameters or I can only read the knob that's on the front of the device at uh, one kilohertz, like once a millisecond or something like that. And they have this sort of like you've given a name and given sort of like a model in a a pattern of working where like there are two different worlds. There is the audio line world and there is the control world and some things operate at control rate and some things operate at that. I've worked on projects that were built really like And I feel like those audio devices that I just described are much more in the like, it is a device that is configurable, but it doesn't think a lot for itself. It's much more on that side. And it's always interesting to see different groups of embedded people take one of those models or not take one of those models or really try to do the other one 
while standing in the wrong pile. Like you write all the internal device logic, but you assume that you're going to be configured by everyone. So you write this whole like REST API or MQTT API that expects you to do these command and control things, but really you can't operate at that rate. I've sort of gone four or five different places here, but how much of what you're building ends up being, I have to build logic that knows how to react immediately at like hard real time sort of functionality levels versus how much can you defer to being dumb because you do have this network to talk over and you go, look, I'm not here for thinking, I'm here for doing. And the Python script or the scientist or whoever's automating or controlling this is going to do all the thinking. And how does that rub between line rate of whatever you're sampling or responding to or your hard real-time guarantees rub against, well, how much latency can I expect to get from a Python script that's talking over MQTT to my device? Yeah, you get into a really interesting point in embedded design. And coming from a background where I do a lot of medical devices, where you have these very strict hard real-time requirements, it's an interesting point to bring up where like there are designs where you expose a register level and like configure me, do whatever you want with me. And then there's also designs where everything's self-contained. But in reality, I think when you see a lot of the more complex embedded systems, they stand right in the middle where you're trying to abstract away the hard real-time nature of things. So the firmware itself, like especially on Stabilizer, there's a ton of very, very hard real-time requirements on it because it's got a sample regularly guaranteed at like 100 megahertz or something like that. And there's all kinds of DMA channels that are coordinating. It's collecting tons of samples into a buffer before it's generating interrupts. And thankfully, we've got Arctic to be able to handle all of this kind of latency management so you can set your DMA to start interrupting you whenever you're in the middle of these kind of MQTT transactions. It's nice because suddenly you can abstract away all of that hard real-time nature and give yourself this super sloppy MQTT interface where you can talk over and you're not going to interrupt this hard real-time behavior. And then as soon as it's able to, it's going to adjust itself based on what you've sent over the network and then start behaving that way. And so it's really a mix of the two of like, yeah, there's this subset of registers enabled, but you're just kind of making a black box underneath. Like if you're looking at traditional SOC designs, you've got the register layer, but then you've got all the logic actually implemented behind that you're configuring. I think embedded system design is very similar to that. You're not, I don't want to care about clock domain crossing when I'm writing registers. Like I don't want to think about that ever in my day-to-day life. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. In our case, there's a lot of, the intent is that someone buys this hardware and they're going to have a debug probe that they plug into it. And they're most likely going to be forking the repository, writing their own DSP routines and making it do whatever they want. The hardware is very flexible. And I think that's one of the things that really drove into our design of kind of this mini con specifying the domain space of the settings, because now you just have a single Rust derived macro at the top of your setting structure. And if someone forks the repository and wants to add their own settings or configuration, set some GPIOs, they can enable that by just adding a new member and they don't have to think about it. And suddenly that propagates out to all the tooling that we made that doesn't know or care about any setting structure. And so it really makes this way more adaptable from someone that may not care about how the internals of all the real-time stuff works. Like someone besides me definitely doesn't care how all the DMA streams are collecting data and how timers are treated. 
Like I find that super awesome as an embedded guy. I'm sure you find that interesting too, but someone who's doing like PhD research in a quantum physics lab doesn't want to think about embedded design. They're not an embedded engineer. They want to get their physics experiment up and running and they need to expose some functionality. And so if we can make that easy for them while still giving all of those hard real-time guarantees, that's where you see this really interesting value proposition. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I spent a lot of time thinking about protocols. So I joke that the thing that I am good at is making computers talk to other computers. And so much of embedded systems is just that, whether it's talking to a sensor or you've got a hundred nodes in the field that are talking to a backend or tooling or, or things like that. A huge amount of the value comes from making computers talk to other computers, which means I think a lot about protocol design and like different ways of doing things. It's interesting going back to when I worked in avionics, your airplane is really a network of computers. We even call them line replaceable units. They are purpose built equipment that have one role and do it really well. And that's sort of the abstraction layer of where it becomes like, I don't think about business logic. I think about what the device does. And that's that's device problem to deal with the best way of how do I do the signal processing for a weather radar or a radar altimeter or something like that? Or how do I filter a pressure sensor to get my altitude versus the incoming airspeed versus the static altitude or pressure altitude and things like that? It was always interesting because you have all of these devices and sometimes you need data from other devices, but also sometimes these devices need to coordinate with each other where most of the time everything was dumb. And so when you talk, when the devices talk to each other, they're mostly just sending their current state like and this is the very like control system approach of multiple devices i find is you send what your current values are so like my state is this you send i would like your state to be this and you listen to what the other device's state is so it's not like a um, request response like you're not querying the device what is the temperature or you're not querying the device like what is your angle of attack you say like the altitude is this, the altitude is this, the altitude is this, the altitude is this. And then when something controls it, you don't send an RPC command. You just listen and you hear the angle of attack is 20 degrees. And instead of making a request and response, you just say, I want you to be 25. I want you to be 25 and I want you to be 25. And that way you can end up writing like these very like control systems, e algorithms on all of these devices, where if you're running a PID loop on your input controller for this, it's not like thinking about, oh, has this message been acknowledged or not or something like that. It's just listening in sort of like the very control system-y PID loop sort of way of like, I control this input into the device and I'm receiving this output to the device and I need to tune my control loop to operate like that. But there's always one or two devices that do actually need to coordinate. Sometimes it's because they share an antenna and they need to make sure that they have coexistence. So only one of them is sending at a time. Or there are a couple of like actual request response. So I worked on collision avoidance systems and actually collision avoidance means talking to other planes. And so you exchange where you are. So you know where all the other planes are and all the other planes know where you are, but it actually takes two systems to do that. There's the transponder, which is saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then there's the TCAS unit, which is sending messages like, where are you? Where are you? You have one unit that's doing one responsibility and another that's doing another, but essentially your TCAS talks to someone else's transponder and then their transponder talks back to your transponder. So like you get this sort of back and forth where if you are in a mode where you're like, hey, tell that plane not to come over here, you need to send a one shot message because you don't want to send out like send them this message, send them this message because you want that message to go out once and you want the response to come back 
once. And so it's always this interesting paradigm where if you can design your systems to be dumb, then you don't have to think about what is my acknowledgement window or you don't have to think about a response timeout because you just say, well, if I stop hearing messages for longer than 500 milliseconds, the other device is faulted or the line is broken and, and we're done here because it should always send at every 100 millisecond or something like that. This sort of gets back to that pub sub versus request response where when you get people coming from a web background, a lot of the times they're thinking in terms of like rest requests and you end up with this sort of like always RPC world where you send a request and you wait for a response versus when you get the more like double E brained people or people who have worked in control systems, you go, ah, I don't want that because it's easier to just think of it in terms of a naive control system of there's inputs and outputs and we just are saying what we want and receiving back what they are. And I was wondering how much of the design of your system ends up being more like the web request response sort of world versus the control system. I want you to be this. I am this sort of back and forth. Yeah, you made me think of something really interesting. It's kind of when you look at these pub sub methodologies, it almost feels like a way for us to take this digitized state and transform that back into a pseudo analog continuous time series value of like, hey, yeah, my altitude's one, my altitude's 1.1, my altitude's 1.2. Like we discreetly, it's a discrete system, but suddenly you've still got this kind of, you've got time associated with it. You can see trends over time. And I, it's interesting that you bring up control systems because it definitely makes sense where you start tying that in. Like when you're thinking about control systems, you want to understand it in terms of continuous signals. Like, you don't want to think of it in terms of command response. It just doesn't make sense when you're trying to do things like that. When you're applying that in our use case, it's interesting because when I think about it, all of the things that are PubSub are these kind of control loop things or data logging. And then all the things that are command response are not related to control loops. Like when we're trying to do the settings, you send a request, like do my setting thing, and you get a response. Like I did your setting thing and it worked. It's interesting because the specific when you're doing settings, that's not a controller. But when you're doing telemetry and you're trying to get feedback about state, that is a controller. That's a really interesting point. Because like in aviation, you would just spec the bus. And this is one of those like safety critical, and you've worked in medical devices, so you know this, versus the, ah, 90% of the time we could be more efficient by doing this. But in like safety critical devices, you go, no, worst case is the only one that matters. So I will just spec the bus so that it has enough bandwidth. So like if you say I'm going to send configuration state, I'm going to send the entire configuration table on every message at the rate of 100 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds, because then I don't have to care, like, is the device booted or not? You just say, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. And then once it starts responding. If it responds with something that doesn't match that, you know, it's not listening to you. And if it responds with my state is this, my state is this, and it matches what you sent, you don't have to worry about like ACK and responses and things like that. But from an efficiency perspective, if your whole configuration table is like three kilobytes and you're sending that every hundred milliseconds over a, you know, Ethernet's a wide pipe. But if in aviation, you use a lot of like very weird, archaic serial protocols that are very low bandwidth or, you know, if you're using I squared C or something like that. That'd be awful for device life or like if the fact that you just have to handle that message every 100 milliseconds is terrible versus like, hey, no, we're all, you know, computers here. I changed the one field that I want you to change. And maybe I can also query you to dump your entire state or you do that on boot up and I just listen and you get those differentials, which are great. But it means that you have to think about the next level of complexity up because you go, have I heard this message from this device ever or 
if you reboot your tooling loop, but not your embedded system, you have to query it. Give me your status because I just woke up and I've never heard it before, even though you sent it five minutes ago. I've never heard it or something like that versus like the really dumb world of you just send the whole thing out all the time and it no thinking, only sending. You never have to think about that because you just go, okay, well, if I just listen, then I know everyone's state. And the first time I hear from them, I know that they're alive and awake. But from an efficiency perspective, that's a terrible idea. And if you were doing anything with battery life, terrible idea. Even for you, where you want to probably reserve as much bandwidth on your network for raw data samples and something like that. Control data is probably not a huge fraction of that. But if you just have to spend the time serializing and deserializing those messages, that's time you could be spent doing... DSP or something like that. That's actually kind of where the beauty of scattergathered DMA comes in. (laughs) Suddenly you're like, okay, well, especially with Arctic, you're like, okay, I need to serialize this huge buffer of data. It's going to take a long time. Obviously, I'm going to be getting samples in that period. And being able to stop yourself when you've like, okay, I've serialized the first curly brace of a JSON and the first quotation mark first field and halfway through the first word okay now we got to go do some abc like do some dsb stuff it's really interesting to see that one of the really interesting parts is also when it comes down to real time in embedded is in your code base when you're writing functions and you have an edge case where you can say like oh yeah we could return early here we could avoid this expensive calculation Sometimes it's actually better to still do the expensive, dumb calculation for no reason, because what it gives you is this known timing characteristic. Suddenly, when you've got this known timing constant, you don't have these weird conditions where most of the time when you're calling this function, it works in a millisecond and then sporadically, like garbage collector comes around and it's 99 milliseconds all of a sudden. If you can keep your control loop consistent, you can kind of manage it better and so sometimes the best path is not the most optimal execution path i'll say like even though we could break out early here we're intentionally not doing it i don't know if that related too much to your earlier question about kind of the request response stuff but it, it kind of jogged an idea in my head yeah definitely for safety critical that's one of those things where if you have a sorting algorithm you might just do insertion sort or bubble sort every single time because you know, even though it's ON squared, you know the number is never going to be greater than 30 and it always takes the same amount of time. You might not even do the early return path versus something that you go, well, 99% of the time it's 10 milliseconds to sort these versus one out of every thousand times, it'll be the worst upside down case and it takes 30 times longer and oops, now you've overrun your timing domain and like, Actually, I'd be interested to hear if your experience is the same, is that consulting is interesting because embedded in particular, I find, has a very different knowledge and maturity level company to company. Like I've been in some companies where the embedded systems teams know a lot of best practices and know a lot of ways of like conceptualizing or thinking about systems problems or approaching them and things like that. But I've also helped a lot of startups where they were building a lot of prototypes or, or maybe even with a team that's not like classically from systems engineering or, or embedded systems. And, you know, they kind of got roped into building the first couple prototypes. And now if they're building like a robot, they're getting really close to safety critical. Maybe they're not in a car or in an industrial control robot or something like that. As the startup expands scope, they're getting closer and closer to like, ah, oh, that's you're, you're getting real close to safety critical and you really need to be doing this 
the like IEC 61508 kind of way or whatever like safety critical standard of analysis. It's interesting to see sometimes I come in and I get blown away because I learn a ton of stuff because they've just been doing this for forever and they have a process and a way of analyzing. And then sometimes you land at these companies where especially when like they have one or two embedded developers that were primarily self-taught or came from like a very different field and got hired into a new domain where they just have no concept of analyzing things like worst case execution time of, hey, no, we need to build this as dumb as it can be because when you have to go through qualification process, every line of code is a liability. And so like, what's the dumbest way that we can build this and still get away with it and have that sort of experience where, sitting down with them like we do exactly what you were talking about is like what's the worst all of these numbers could ever be like what is the longest latency our adc could give back before it has a conversion complete or what's the longest time it could take to send a message like this or what's the longest time that we're going to allow this to happen before we declare a fault or something like that it actually sometimes makes things way easier because you just say i don't care about like ah uh, this is 90% and this is 90%. So statistically, maybe these sometimes you just go, no, add, 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 add. Do I have the CPU budget or the RAM budget or the code storage budget for all of these things? And does it pass or not? And if the answer is no, we buy a bigger chip. And if the answer is yes, then we're good to go. Or if we can't buy a bigger chip, the question is, what can we cut to make it go away? And it's all exactly those things of like, you stop worrying about statistical on whatever because in safety critical you only care about the worst case because that's what matters or or how quickly can we respond to something going wrong so yeah again i don't know if any of this maps back to the protocol stuff it's interesting having that different domain experience because just seeing how different industries solve different problems and what's the way you must do it in safety critical would not fly in like consumer products because everything would be over spec and everything would run longer and everything would be like, you go, well, if it crashes once a week, ideally it does it at night when no one's going to notice. And then just, you know, don't display a splash screen and no one noticed that. It, like, that's one of my favorite things from the Pebble watch is they had a ton of like fail and reboot quickly stuff where if you weren't looking at it when it crashed, you probably wouldn't have even noticed that it crashed. And they would do things like take core dumps. So the next time you reattach to your phone, they will just kind of quietly upload a core dump when a crash happened so that it's all sneaky stuff. If it's someone's not staring at it and there's no like how bad do things get if it crashes? If your watch reboots once a month, 99% of the time you're not going to be looking at it so you won't even notice it. So like the impact is zero versus like in your analysis system, if once a day it crashed and it invalidated a scientist's research that day because all of a sudden the data was corrupted or maybe it was really expensive in time or materials to set up that equipment. like. The answer of what's acceptable failure is totally, totally different. That's always like a rub in my head of like, which approach do I take for those kind of things? So I got really far off on that, but I, it would be interesting to hear if you've experienced really wide gaps in how people do it, either just like stylistically or just they don't really know how to do it at all when you come in to help them for consulting. I've seen kind of all over the board, and I think it comes down to how embedded systems are taught nowadays. In that, like, oftentimes they're not. You don't see very many embedded courses in university anymore. Like, I think I had one class for one semester, and then I ended up doing an autonomous robotic submarine and did all of the electrical engineering and microcontrollers for that. And that's essentially how I got my start in embedded and then immediately went into consulting after I graduated. And it's like, nobody knows how this stuff works. And I, I wonder if part of it comes down to the fact that 
it's so dependent on what the capabilities of your chip are. Like you can go from this multi-core sock that's got all this kind of connectivity all the way down to like an MSP430 that's been around for 30 years where you've got 100 kilobytes of RAM. The capabilities between those two devices are so divergent that I think you end up seeing a lot of different design methodologies. And in embedded, it's almost more like an art because there's no necessarily like right way to do it. If it conforms to spec and it doesn't crash, it works. Like, and even sometimes crashing is totally a-okay. I mean, coming from the safety critical, definitely not. But it's an interesting kind of way of looking at it. I've seen a lot of startups where you made this point about going from startup, working your way into safety critical. And it can be a little bit of a dangerous path because when you go into safety critical designs, a lot of it is about the process. It's not about the code itself. And so when you take this startup behavior where we made the prototype and you turn that into product, you don't have any of the safety process behind you verifying that like what you did was the right way to do it. And so like, yeah, it might work, but that doesn't really tell you anything about whether or not it's acceptable to use it in the safety critical context, which is a weird thing to wrap your head around if you haven't done safety critical stuff before. Suddenly, like, it's not about whether or not the device works. It's about all of the analysis behind it. You could publish the source code for a lot of medical devices, and it's meaningless because people couldn't use it because you can't go and get that approved by the FDA. You need all of this information back there to be able to say, like, hey, this device is safe. We've done all the analysis that no one is going to hurt. These are all the failure modes. And, like, none of that is there in code. It's all testing and So you get these wildly different domains where like, we need a prototype in two weeks to verify this product idea so that we can invest $2 million, hire all these engineers and get it done. But we need to know if it's possible versus like, we need to make this device that's not going to kill people that potentially could. And so you get these really interesting design patterns where there's these weird interplays and it can be dangerous when they cross. I think you really nailed it on the, how wide embedded is like embedded spans everything from like, I'm writing assembly on a, an eight bit micro all the way up to like embedded Linux deployment. And we call all of that embedded. Yeah. I did a podcast episode a couple of years ago now with Francois from interrupt who used to be at pebble. And we talked about this a lot of like, you talk about how people got into it where, especially on the lower end of when you're talking about like your pick eights or whatever, like a lot of people were like double E's who were, they were the one that was like software inclined and they figured out how to get the PID loop running on their pick so they could have a better motor controller or something like that. And they came up from that. Or you get the people from the opposite side who were doing backend services and they had done a little bit of electronic stuff before. So they got roped into writing the microcontroller code. And you really do have these two very different worlds that are smashing together in the middle where you get this really weird gray area of everything from like 32 bit microcontrollers up to very small microprocessors. And there is no one style and there's no one right answer. And particularly when everyone's cost optimizing or trying to get the most hard real time out of everything that they're doing, there's no one size fit all approach, which is, (laughs) it's something for sure. There's also this interesting kind of issue where, um, Once you build something and embed it, it's not like software. The second you release code, it becomes legacy code. It exists out there in the world, and you may or may not need to deal with it. At the moment that you're releasing it, you're like, yeah, this is great. It's perfect. It works fantastically. Obviously, never ends up being that way in a few months' time, and you patch it and make new code. But that stuff 
stays out there. And so it's kind of an interesting domain where you have to deal with these. Maybe this is a nice loop back into kind of protocol and being able to deal with schemas. You've got all this old firmware that's sitting out there. It's a snapshot of the point in time. Like a code base is obviously organic. It changes as your design, as you learn how to program better or learn new design patterns, so does the code base. But the second you put it onto a device, it freezes. So you get these interesting problems. And this is one of the things I've been wanting to solve in MQTT with some of our settings configuration, where you could publish some self-representative schema. When I was, I worked as an intern at SpaceX for a while. And from what I understood about their telemetry protocol, it was really interesting because they'd reserve like 10% of the packet payload for metadata about what the message itself represented. And then the rest of the 90% was like the actual payload. But it was all binary and serialized, so all nice and compact. So essentially, all someone would have to do on the listening end was get a few of these messages and build up their metadata. And once they got that, they could start interpreting all the messages. So you didn't have to know anything about the structure of it. And you could create all this ground support equipment that's listening to data from the rocket, builds up its own metadata, and then just starts logging that in the dumps where they can do analysis after the launch. It was just super fascinating to see. And I've been kind of wanting to like, how could we kind of emulate that kind of structure where you have this self-describing data format? So I actually spent a ton of time thinking about this recently because Postcard does not encode its own schema in it. Super compact binary serialization. So like there's no hints at what field starts and ends where or whatever. Like Seabor is binary, but it, it still has that JSON-like schema where you go like field start, field end, whatever, or like protobuf has field number, whatever, whatever, whatever. Even if you can't really understand it, you can still like interpret some of it or if you have a partial understanding it might be useful but postcard has none of that it, if you don't know exactly how to interpret those bytes it's garbage to you like it might as well be meaningless and i thought a lot about how can i encode that and i came up with what i thought was a fairly clever way of encoding the schema because lachlan someone who who's hung out before helped me write a derive macro so it actually walks the schema down so you can get this sort of static struct that describes the recursive structure of the data and then you could serialize that using some like well-known format or even like compress it or even just take like a hash of it to make sure that your schemas match up. And that's what I wrote that post of like, what good is partial understanding? And I, I came to the same approach that you saw is from a code in the field perspective, there is no value because if you ship these two devices at the same time and you update one to send new data that the new one doesn't know how to feel, it has no code to handle that new field. Like, okay, cool. You're sending me a humidity. I know you have sent me a field called humidity, but I don't know what that means. And the code that I shipped on that date knows nothing about humidity. So like the best it can do is ignore it. But I think telemetry and logging is the one case where that's not true because you can stick that schema in a database or even like if you heard the schema late, you could go back and reinterpret old messages and things like that. And I think telemetry of which logging or tracing counts as that is one of those things where you go, if I know nothing about this device in the field, how can I tell what it's trying to tell me? And I think that is one of those areas where it is really useful. But I think where I sort of lost interest in there, I goes, this will never help me with device to device communication. It will only help me with postmortem analysis or something like that, which has a ton of value like you've shown doesn't help you in the field, which is what I, the problem I was trying to tackle at the time. And that made me realize like 
There just is no way because if you've written code that doesn't understand something, you can't make it understand it after the fact unless you go like really fancy dynamic programming like Python or something like that. But then still you're limited by the flexibility that you've put into the code when you shipped it and snapshotted it, like you said. Hey, all we've got to do is start putting in deep neural networks on their microcontrollers to be able to interpret the telemetry. That's It's going to be easy in the future, trust me. Large language models. <laughs> My approach for doing the schema was I designed a compact fourth stack machine that described you would encode how to decode the message. Like the schema wasn't just a schema. The schema was a small fourth program that decoded all of the fields for you by essentially like walking the stack of the data that you got in. Nice. Which means that if you already knew the binary serialization of it, you could just do the raw thing. But if you wanted to dump it into logs, I figured out how in like a couple dozen or hundred bytes, how you could write a very compact fourth program because Saturday only has like 29 data fields. And so like if you can recurse with a stack, you can actually decode all of them in a way where you get essentially like one byte per opcode. And if you feed that into a VM, that opcode can walk the payload essentially. And most of that, like hundred and whatever bytes were like the field names. So if you gave up on field names, or if you, like you said, you just send field names occasionally where you send like one piece of it that you can reassemble and then deal with it later, you can end up getting a program that can decode it dynamically in just a stupid small amount of time. This is something that White Quark uh, or Catherine suggested to me where I was talking about how do we compress this more when you don't know this information and she was like well you make a virtual machine for it and at first i thought she was kidding or, or joking and i was thinking about it and i go no that is the right answer <laughs> like you you build this sort of like self decompressing format or something like that i, I guess fourth is the very old approach to that maybe ml is the new approach to that like i literally wrote something and then i go well, what do i do with this like i can then print it to a console but i can't do anything with it because if i don't know what any of these fields mean then like there's no semantic meaning that goes with it i like the data is recovered you can't teach the meeting after the fact to a program that's already shipped unless you can send it an update script or an update firmware that then later can interpret it. But then you've flashed new code. So it doesn't matter that it's a schema that it doesn't understand because you just teach it to understand that. Like this is sort of like that lockstep I got myself into where I go, well, it, if you can update it, you don't need something that handles this. And if you can't, then there's nothing that you can do to make it understand this. So yeah, it's funny. I think that's the reason why as much as I absolutely loathe serialization protocols like JSON. I think that's why people like them because it is a self-descriptive type system where you can just receive it and everyone knows how to understand that data. There's a few things missing, like you aren't able to say upper and lower bounds if you want like a setting or if you have enums or something, you can't say all of the various enums that you support. But by and large, it kind of tells you everything you need with just glancing at it, and it's relatively human-readable. As much as it's not efficient at all at a binary level, it's easy. And in cases, especially going back into MQTT, like when you've got a TCP connection over 100 megabit phi, like, I don't care if I'm wasting a few bytes. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, we've got streaming data and stuff, but it's stream data. If you miss it this time, you can get it next time. Like, there'll be more. It's interesting where it comes down to ease of use ultimately. Postcard is obviously would be really cool, but you make a great point where when you get into this machine to machine, like being able to understand the format is meaningless because you have to update it. But with these kind of telemetry protocols, there's usually not something that's kind of trying to interpret it. It's purely just logging everything it gets. 
And then after the fact, you can kind of postmortem go and look at it. So yeah, it, it makes me wonder. I don't know if there is a good way that you could have a meaningful self-describable format that would be machine to machine. If you figure it out, let me know. I mean, <laughs> fourth answer on this was don't send data, send programs to each other. So I mean, like you get into things like PostScript where back in the day when like printers were brand new and, you know, switch networks were brand new and things like that. There's a good chance you couldn't actually rasterize your printer would have 10 times more CPU than your end terminal would. And so there was no way that your end terminal could rasterize a whole PDF or something equivalent to a PDF to send it to the printer. So what it did instead is it would send a program that drew it. So it would go, there are lines here and there is text here with this font here and this, this. And so like, that was the, the other thing, but then you get into this super like crazy world of everyone's a VM for each other's commands versus like, that's the opposite of what you want in safety critical where you go like, no, I want bounded determinism and strict understanding of each other versus like, Hey, we just throw programs at each other. And you don't have to think you just do because we have this like the common understanding is not the protocol. It's the VM essentially at that point. But the buzzword of the last two to three years, at least in medical devices, has been cybersecurity because the U.S. released some presidential decrees that are like, you shall be cybersecure. A lot of the work I've been doing recently is like, how do we ensure that these devices are secure and you can't hack them, which is a very meaningful problem to solve. And when you start looking at kind of these remote, send me the program to execute, suddenly that becomes a giant, like, that's just like cross-site scripting for your embedded system. That sounds incredibly dangerous and like a giant hole. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but uh, it's the only solution I've been able to come up to is how do you build systems that don't have to understand what is asked of them? And the answer is, well, then you get into the dynamic world of of scripting languages, whether that's JavaScript or Python or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's still the ability to send new code. And like, <laughs> could you have done that better with over-the-air updates? But it's interesting. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about for both protocols and like how to think about stuff like that. That's interesting. We've been going for about an hour and a half, and I could go another hour and a half, but I don't think I can keep you here or and I can't keep myself here. So. Need to go and get dinner. Uh, yeah, we're both in the same time zone, so it is about dinner time. But it's been excellent to talk to you, and I would love to talk to you again soon. But thanks so much for coming on to to chat today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a fun time. You mentioned that you're doing consulting in a couple of the companies that you're working for. Is there anything that you've been working on or that you'd like to plug or to share before we wrap up? Check out forge.dev. That's the only plug I've got. If you're building devices, come and, come and talk to us. Do you want to give a quick uh, explanation of what that is? Because I know what it is, but do you want to give the, do you have the like 30 second elevator pitch of it? Oh God, I should have this. Okay, let's give it a shot. We automate flashing programming devices, put it all on the web for you. So you track it. So if you're building a lot of something, we help you do that. I think that, I think that was 30 seconds. Oh, less than. So it's all of the like factory installation and testing, I assume, or at least basic smoke test. Do you wake up? Hello, here's your program sort of tooling for people who are building automation in the factory basically yeah but it's more than that it's also like you need to put serial numbers on each device you need to put all your test programs you need to run them collect all your data do trending check device requirements all kinds of that so that's the intent of forge that centralizes all of that puts it all in one place you put your device in you plug in the programming port you hit start and at the end it tells you if it pass failed and then you get all these trend lines of all your devices over time and you're able to check if they're passing requirements or where things are going wrong 
That's another one of those things that I see startups really struggle with. They think that they're done once the hardware works and you go, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. Now you start phase two, which is how do you make it so that you can make thousands of these a day with a reasonable failure rate and know when something has gone wrong in your assembly process. And they go, that's like you finish the first 90% of the project and then you start the next 90% of the project. So I'm super excited to see uh, see where that goes. But thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by One Variable UG, a consultancy focused on advising and development services in the areas of systems engineering, embedded systems, and software development in the Rust programming language based in Berlin, Germany. Check out our website at onevariable.com or send an email to contact at onevariable.com. This interview was conducted on August 3rd, 2023. Audio recording done by James Munns, edited and produced by Amanda Mayerovich. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. Thanks for listening.